Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the China History Podcast. Laszlo Montgomery here for the 239th time. For the past eight episodes, and for the ninth one today, we've been looking at the warlord era in China that began in part one with the death of Yuan Shikai in June of 1916. And in this episode, the penultimate one, I guess you could call it, We'll almost but not quite finish things off as we continue on with the Northern Expedition, the big military campaign that was going to once and for all put an end to the warlords and let China, for the first time since the fall of the Qing, to get a chance to take a breather and regroup after a very rough half century. Wishful thinking back then. We left off last episode in the afterglow of the Shanghai Massacre. This was in April 1927. If you recall from so many past episodes and series, this was also when the Chinese Communist Party, the ones who survived it, that is, scattered in all directions, and Mao Zedong and his followers had made their way to Jingangshan in Jiangxi and started to create a bit of CCP history there. And for the half year leading up to the Shanghai Massacre, the labor and peasant movement had advanced greatly thanks to a number of factors. CCP organizing, help from the Comintern, reforms that followed in the wake of the first phase of the Northern Expedition, and from the KMT left as well. So that problem was dealt with for the time being. From about the Anhui-Jirli War in July 1920 to the two Jirli Feng Tian Wars of 1922 and 1924, followed by the Anti Feng Tian War of 1925, 1926, and all these other wars and mini wars Jiangsu, Zhejiang, Guangdong, Guangxi, Yunnan, Guangxi. Remember when I said at the outset what a terribly complicated period this was? Well, from the moment Yuan Shikai died in June 1916, it was a time of nonstop war, battles and skirmishes, alliances, broken alliances, the world at war, government in disarray, the CCP on the rise, the Soviets trying to control the narrative, the suffering of the entire Chinese populace who had to go along on this ride, this, this warlord era. It really was a rough dozen or so years before it finally ended and was replaced by something even more horrific. I've left out quite a bit of history from this whole warlord era. It's it's a lot of the same thing. I've mentioned most of the important events and some of the major names, but this dive could go much deeper than I'm taking it. And being the betting man that I've always been, I'm thinking most of you will be pretty much satisfied with the headlines. The main thing I guess I wanted to convey was the destructiveness of these years, not only to the land, the infrastructure, and the people's livelihood, but to China's standing in the world. Because of these warlords and all the political paralysis caused, China sort of boxed itself into a corner and made it easy for other nations to take advantage of the situation and, you know, get rich off the fat of the land. And as we head deeper into 1927, 1928, and even into 1929 and 1930, you'll see these warlords become like zombies that refuse to die. During the Northern Expedition, with every victory of the NRA, you keep getting the feeling this nightmare is over at last. And then it's not over. They're back. You know, when Jiang went and ordered the Shanghai Massacre, it was shocking. It created 
what turned out to be a rift between the leftist and rightist elements of the KMT that could never be truly reconciled. And of course, as far as the KMT-CCP relations, uh, Jiang Kai-shek going and doing what he did pretty much threw down the gauntlet. The CCP, understandably, was in total disarray and trying to bounce back from the Shanghai Massacre and the so-called White Terror. They had been taken by surprise and needed time to regroup and get back into the game later. At this point, they were following the advice of their Soviet comrades and not yet taking control of their own destiny. That will come soon. In the meantime, Stalin and Trotsky were having their epic struggle up in Russia, and both had opposite points of view as far as which road the CCP should take in China. The KMT left and KMT right went at each other. Wang Jingwei called for Jiang's ouster and stripped him of all offices and commands. Jiang countered by setting up a new government in Nanjing on April 18, 1927. Stalin's famous rambling telegram of early June 1927 did a lot to complicate matters. I mentioned it last episode. And once Wang Jingwei got to read a copy of what Stalin was suggesting that the CCP do... Yeah, he knew KMT left was just a pawn being used by the CCP and their Soviet masters against the KMT right. So Wang had managed to alienate himself from Jiang and the KMT right in Nanjing, and now he knew the ones he trusted all this time were secretly plotting against his interests. So what to do now? The two competing factions of the KMT decided not as one fighting force, but separately instead, to resume the fight against Zhang Zolin and his National Pacification Army allies. On the KMT left, they had the Hunan warlord Tang Shengzhi as their main military backer. They decided to take the fight to Jiang, meet up with Feng Yuxiang along the way, bring him over to their side, finish off Zhang Zolin and his minions, and then, once this was all taken care of, They planned to go after Jiang Kai-shek and get rid of him. Well, that was the plan anyway. This Wuhan coalition, led by Tang Shengzhi and his army, had marched northeast along the Peking-Hanko railway line towards the city of Zhengzhou all throughout May 1927. Whenever they encountered Zhang Zuolin's troops, they kept pushing him back. All was going well so far. The Wuhan troops and Feng Yuxiang's troops, who had marched from Shanxi, all converged on the ancient city of Zhengzhou about the same time. Feng Yuxiang set up his headquarters there. Chinese civilization had been alive and well in that city in Hunan province, going all the way back to the Shang kings of the 16th century BCE, more than 30 centuries before Feng Yuxiang added to the city's considerable historical legacy. Zhengzhou was the last major stop in the rail line that branched out all over northern China. And now this key transport and railway hub was controlled by Feng Yuxiang. That's why in June 1927, both factions of the KMT, the left and the right, were actively courting Feng Yuxiang, trying to win him over to their side. Negotiators from Wang Jingwei and Jiang Kai-shek were holding secret meetings with Feng, making all kinds of promises and offering attractive cash bribes. 
And on June 19, 1927, two months after the Shanghai Massacre, Chiang Kai-shek had his turn to personally meet face-to-face with Feng Yuxiang, their first encounter. Feng had just left a meeting the other day with Wang Qingwei's people to see what they had to offer him. And now it was time to see what promises and financial incentives Jiang and the KMT right would make. Whoever offered the best deal, that's who Feng Yuxiang went with. Basic Warlord Theory 101. There's a story about how when Jiang Kai-shek went up to Xuzhou, Jiangsu province, to wait for the Christian warlord, Feng's train pulled up and he walked out of a boxcar dressed like a common soldier and announced himself to a very surprised Jiang, who was, you know, expecting someone a little more professional and dignified looking. This was later called a big setup, and that Feng had actually rode in more comfortably appointed rooms, and that before the train got to the station in Xuzhou, Feng switched train cars and changed into more humble soldier's garb. He carried out the same ruse with Wang Jingwei, I read. So Feng Yuxiang had grown disillusioned with the Soviets after his short stint there following the anti-Feng Tian War, and he had enough sense of patriotism to see what they had in mind as far as which direction they'd like to see China go. So that's one reason he ended up shaking hands with Jiang Kai-shek at this meeting. And the Generalissimo saw to it that after they had both come to a general understanding A $2 million per month cherry on top of everything else was promised. Chiang Kai-shek, the closer. So Feng Yuxiang, this time around, June 1927, was going to fight on the side of the nationalists. And he made his intentions known in the form of a telegram sent to the Wuhan government in which he suggested three things. First, get rid of all the communists and Soviet advisors. Second was to go join the Nanjing government. And lastly, he suggested some leaders in the faction go take a nice, extended European vacation. And that, my friends, was pretty much the end of the Wuhan left-leaning KMT government. The Soviets knew the jig was up and packed up and started heading home. And Wang Jingwei took the betraying general up on that European holiday idea. And once he declared his loyalties to Jiang and the NRA, Feng Yuxiang carried out a purge in his own ranks, too, of all communists. This included his illustrious political commissar at the time, Mr. Deng Xiaoping. He had to make a quick exit. And not long after, Deng will run into Mao Zedong in Wuhan, his first meeting with the future great helmsman. We all know what happens after that. Also mentioned so many times in past episodes. Communist operatives everywhere throughout 1927 and into 1928 were hunted down and killed or driven underground until it was safe to come out. The KMT and the two armies controlled by the Wuhan faction and the Nanjing faction couldn't fight as one. Too much bad blood out there. And consequently, Zhang Zolin and his forces, led primarily by Le Dog Meat General Zhang Zongchang and the Nanking warlord Sun Chuanfang, they fought hard and took back all the territory they, they had lost to the NRA during the summer of 1927. And after suffering a major drubbing at the hands of Sun Chuanfang's forces around Nanjing, Jiang Kai-shek was back on his heels. A poor result on the battlefield and getting outmaneuvered by his fellow rivals in the KMT, 
forced Jiang in August 1927 to step down, and he removed himself from the action. It had been four months since the Shanghai Massacre, and the blowback from that and Jiang's inability to finish off the northern expedition caused Jiang to make a political, tactical withdrawal. It ended up taking the combined efforts of Li Zongren, He Yingqin, and Feng Yuxiang's armies to finally defeat Sun Quanfang in September 1927. This allowed NRA troops to catch somewhat of a breather with Sun out of the way. That had been an exhausting string of battles. He had been a menace to not only his enemies, but well, society as well, all throughout 1925, 26, and 27. His troops saw a lot of action. And wherever there was action, innocent civilians lost their lives or had them turned upside down. So, August 1927, Chiang Kai-shek retreated to his hometown of Shiko, where he began a self-imposed five-month exile. Shiko is located just a little southwest of Ningbo, which is why Chiang Kai-shek is considered a Ningbo Ren. And there, in Shiko, Jiang waited things out. And if you ever find yourself in Ningbo with nothing to do, go visit this place. Quite historic. Shiko is where Jiang stashed Zhang Xueliang after the Xi'an incident in 1936. The villa he shared with Song Meiling is also there in Shiko, the Meiling Gong. And speaking of Song Meiling, as this drama is all playing out, Jiang in the summer of 1927 asked for her hand in marriage, and this time she accepted. Back in 1922, when he met her at a party at Sun Yat-sen's house, he was a relative nobody compared to someone the likes of Song Mei-ling. But not anymore. In 1922, she looked down on him as too common and rough around the edges. But now, despite the political circumstances of the moment... He was arguably the leading military and political figure at a time when there were a lot of powerful military and political figures operating on the stage of Chinese history. So it wasn't such a great catch five years ago. All of a sudden, wasn't looking so bad. Hitching her carriage to Jiang Kai-shek wasn't a bad deal for Song Mei-ling, nor for the whole Song family clan, and for Jiang, I might add. And if you remember from that old Whitey Smith episode, CHP 193, on December 1st, 1927, 40-year-old Jiang Kai-shek and 26-year-old Song Mei-ling were wed. And that most gala event of the year was held that same evening in the Majestic Hotel with Whitey in all his glory, the great showman, up on the bandstand. What a night. By the end of 1927, things within the KMT were sufficiently in enough disarray that it was felt in some circles that maybe bringing back Jiang wasn't such a bad idea. And so, on January 1st, 1928, with the KMT now unified, or more unified than usual, Jiang Kai-shek was handed the leadership of the party. And then, on February 18th, he was made commander-in-chief of the Northern Expeditionary Forces, with He Yingqin serving as his deputy. This second phase of the Northern Expedition that had languished for almost a year was going to once and for all bring down Chang Lin. That was the plan anyway. To do this, four armies were organized. The first army, or Central Army, based in Nanjing, well, they were led by Jiang and were 
chock full of Wampoa Military Academy officers and soldiers. The second army was essentially Feng Yuxiang's Guomianjun, or National People's Army. The third was the army of the Shanxi warlord, Yan Shan, and the fourth army was led by Li Zongren and his Guangxi army. Warlords fighting warlords. What else is new? On Jiang's side, all warlord armies combined had about 700,000 troops fighting against about 400,000 warlord troops on the other side. And so on April 9th, 1928, almost a year to the day that Jiang kicked the hornet's nest and unleashed the Shanghai Massacre and White Terror, the northern expedition was launched again. Last time, the Japanese Guangdong army stopped him before the NRA was able to march into Shandong. He was planning to do it now, whether they liked it or not, and his army headed in the direction of Shandong, the land of the two great and ancient states of Qi and Lu. Chiang Kai-shek knew there was going to be some kind of reaction from Japan. So, let's wait and see. And over in Shanxi province, the model governor, Yan Shishan, leading his own army, the third of the four northern expedition armies, he had decided well, it was best for him to have moved his chips over to the Jiang Kai-shek's side. All this time, Jiang Zuo-lin had been making overtures to Yan Shishan to have him declare his loyalties to the Feng Tian side. As Yan Shishan always did, he weighed his options considered the merits and benefits, and decided on what was best for him. And what was best for Yan Shishan, at least while he was in charge, was always best for Shanxi province. So with Jiang's army on the march, heading in the direction of the Shandong capital, the Japanese officials in Jinan called their big strong buddies in the Guangdong army and said, something's about to go down and it won't be good for Team Japan. The 2,000 or so Japanese nationals in Jinan were going to need some protection. So they told the Guangdong army, better send about 3,000 troops or so. Only a few weeks into the relaunch of the northern expedition, the first and second armies were camped outside Jinan. Chiang Kai-shek showed up in early May 1928 and at once started negotiating with the Japanese to persuade them to leave Jinan and allow the NRA to come in and reestablish political and administrative control over the city. You know, it worked in ancient times. If you set your mind to something, all you need is an incident to point to, to justify some extreme action that you're looking to take. And just as Jiang thought taking back Jinan was going to be easy. What followed Jiang's attempted takeover of Jinan is written into the Chinese history books as the Jinan Incident, the Wusan Tan'an, May 3rd, 1928. It worked so well for Japan, they did it again on Zhou Yiba, 918-1931. In trying to gingerly establish control of the city, a bunch of Japanese got roughed up, couple dozen or so killed, and before you could say Casas Belli, the Japanese military on May 8th, 1928, launched an all-out attack on the city of Jinan. 5,000 Chinese killed. It was a romp. Japan then held Jinan close to their chest until they were forced to let it go in March 1929. 
Not surprisingly, and you could dig deeper if you want to, like a lot of these incidents that happened in China between the Japanese and Chinese, the CCP and the KMT, the CCP and the USA, and so on and so forth, whoever had a horse in that race, there's always more than one version, supported by the different groups involved. In any case, Chiang Kai-shek cut his losses and moved on to the big prize, the final destination, the Zhongdianzhan of the campaign, the last stop, the city of Beijing, where Zhang Zolin awaited. But as Jiang's diaries reveal, and he was most prolific about recording his thoughts in his private diaries, from here on out, he will know Japan's greatest enemy without was Japan, and they could never be trusted. His attitudes towards Japan were very much impacted by the outcome of this Jinan incident. He never forgot it. And not just Jiang. The whole military establishment didn't need to have the outcome explained to them. And Chinese civilians who knew what was going on, their attitudes towards Japan hardened as well. The Northern Expedition combined forces began pushing the dogmeat general Zhang Zongchang and the young marshal Zhang Xueliang back north to their particular strongholds. As for Wu Peifu, fighting on the side of Zhang Zolin against the NRA, he too could not hold back Jiang's forces and decided to make a retreat to Sichuan province and finally get out of the warlord business. Zhang Zongchang was soundly defeated and went back to his home province of Shandong, the very province that he had ruled as his own personal kingdom and cash cow. Now, he's going to make a grab to get back to those glory days, but we'll look at that next episode. The Japanese liked everything the way it was in Manchuria, with Zhang Zolin in charge of things. The old marshal, well, he didn't see eye to eye on everything with the Japanese, but with him in charge, well, they were given a rather free hand to go kick the tires all over North China and shop for some new acquisitions. The Mukden incident was still four years away and the Marco Polo Bridge incident a decade away. But by the late 1920s, the anti-Japanese feeling all over China was very palpable. Incidents happened all the time. Japanese nationals often got hurt or roughed up by the locals. And now Japanese troops and weapons were pouring into China under the pretense of protecting Japanese citizens and interests in China. More and more Japanese naval vessels were plying China's coast and great rivers. And because he didn't do anything about this as it was happening before everyone's eyes, Chiang Kai-shek ended up getting heaps of criticism from every corner for putting up with this Japanese arrogance and aggression and not taking the fight to them when they were so disrespecting China. He appeased the Japanese too easily, his critics said. Chiang secretly knew after these warlords were dealt with once and for all, he'd have to deal with Japan next, in one form or another. He didn't want to take on both at the same time. By May 1928, Jiang's first and second armies were advancing on Beijing. Zhang Zolin was still in control of the capital, but he knew things weren't looking good. Former frenemy Yan Shishan was advancing from the west, now fighting on Chiang Kai-shek's side against him. The old marshal knew his Sun Tzu as well as anyone, and he knew when the right time was to make a tactical retreat. Two months into the campaign, the NRA had taken Beijing. And Zhang Zolin did something he didn't do too often. When Japan 
had threatened everyone to keep their fighting out of Manchuria, or else. The old marshal, he didn't like that, and told them where to stick it. There's something about Zhang Zolin. The Japanese were starting to have second thoughts about how pliable their old friend was going to be as far as bending to their demands. So June 3rd, 1928, Zhang Zolin, along with his entourage, boarded his private train, pulled out of Beijing Station, and headed in the direction of Shenyang. Then in the early hours of the morning of June 4th, 1928, just as his train was approaching northwest Shenyang at Huanggutun Station, bombs were set off on a bridge that Zhang Zolin's train carriage was passing under. It collapsed and killed the Manchurian warlord. Not instantly, but he perished before lunchtime. This was known as the Huanggutun Shijian, the Huanggutun Incident. Blowing up Zhang Zolin's train was an utter and complete disaster for Japan. It was terribly bungled by rogue elements inside the Guangdong army who took it upon themselves to deal drastically with this Manchurian warlord who was mouthing off to them, talking to the Soviets, talking to the Americans. So the conspirators meant for this to be the Mukden incident that would create the wherewithal for Japan to take over Manchuria. But instead, right at the outset, things didn't go according to plan. It failed in its main objective. Even Emperor Hirohito gave the ones responsible a written tongue lashing. The hawks in the Guangdong army had to wait till 918, 1931 to finally get their Mukden incident. And the upshot to all this that perhaps most of all contributed to making this a disaster for Japan and Manchuria, was that Zhang Xueliang, on June 19, 1928, called Jiang Kai-shek and let him know he too was joining the NRA side. The Japanese bumped off the old marshal because he was dragging his heels on a lot of what the Guangdong military was asking for. They wrongly predicted that Zhang Zolin's drug addict playboy son, the young marshal, Zhang Xueliang, would be a less pugnacious warlord to deal with. But they misjudged him. Zhang Xueliang didn't require too many brain cells to see what Japan's Guangdong army was up to, and he knew he didn't have enough muscle power to take Japan on alone. But the young marshal knew he could really throw a wrench in their plans by joining up with the nationalist government and throwing his lot in with Chiang Kai-shek. Watching Zhang Xueliang's army raise the nationalist flag in Manchuria was just about the last thing Japan wanted to see happen. Yeah, they should have thought twice before they went and blowed up Zhang Zolin's train. This was a stunning reversal of fortune for Japan. So with Zhang Zolin out of the way and Zhang Xueliang now on his side, Chiang Kai-shek's army took Beijing on July 6, 1928. And that was the official end of the Northern Expedition. Or was it? We'll see what happened next in the conclusion of this Warlord series. Matt Sheehan and Holly He just came out with a new podcast that I'd like to give you a rock-solid recommendation to. Heartland Mainland, the Iowa-China podcast. You know, you could learn a lot about the U.S.-China relationship driving around the Hawkeye State, the state next door from where I grew up. That's what Matt and Holly did. And from the teaser and first episode, I can't recommend this podcast enough. New from Matt Sheehan, 
Yeah, that's right, the Chinafornia guy. The Trans-Pacific Experiment guy. Fellow at the Paulson Institute, headquartered in my hometown, Chicago, Illinois. Matt and Holly, both part of that think tank at the Paulson Institute. Heartland Mainland, the Iowa-China podcast, wherever podcasts are sold. And may I also shamelessly plug the new children's book from my good friend, Yu Chia Chao, Little Sen's Chinese Holidays. Great book for your three to eight-year-old. It's never too early to learn all the traditional Chinese holidays, the values, the special foods, treats, customs, all the basic stuff in English and simplified Chinese. This is a great little book, beautifully illustrated, and it breaks down all the holidays and allows your precious one to learn all about these Chinese festivals. Little Sen's Chinese Holidays, new from Yu Chia Chao and Shiny Lantern Press. All the links will be in the show notes for this episode at the official CHP website at teacup.media. Hey, and use a special discount code CHP. Get 20% off. And last but not least, again, you have nothing to fear except fear itself. If you'd like to support the CHP and all the conscripted laborers I have to use to help me get this thing out on time every two weeks, go to patreon.com slash China History Podcast. Or for something quick and easy, find my begging bowl at paypal.me slash China History Podcast. That's going to be it for this time, ladies and gentlemen. Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles, California, hoping and praying You'll find it in your heart to come back one more time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast, not to mention the conclusion to this series. Take care, everyone.